My name is Keith Beavers, and guys, this is the first episode of season three of Y101. Three. What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to episode one of season three of Vine Pairs Wine 101 podcast. My name is Keith Beavers. I'm the tasting director of Vine Pair. Vine Pair Keith on Insta. How you doing? Today begins a three-part series to kick off season three. The history of American wine. Oh, are you ready? J. Gallo Winery is excited to sponsor this episode of Vine Pairs Wine 101. Gallo always welcomes new friends to wine with an amazing wide range of favorites ranging from everyday to luxury and sparkling wines. I mean, Gallo also makes award-winning spirits, but you know, this is a wine podcast. So whether you're new to wine or an aficionado, Gallo welcomes you to wine. We look forward to serving you enjoyment and moments that matter. Cheers. So... I've spent a lot of time thinking about American wine, not just like American wine itself, which I have. And I think we're, we're moving in all kinds of cool directions these days, but I have thought a lot about the history of American wine because it is one of the most, I don't know. It's one of the coolest stories. It's almost a story like you would actually see in a documentary or like a movie. Like, if I was doing a documentary about, the, about the, the, the history of American wine, you would see me somewhere in Spain, we'll get to that in a minute, outside of a monastery, we'll get that to, to that in a minute, with a drone shot of just me looking up, and I would say something, which we'll get to in a minute, and then the drone shot would just zoom up into the air, you'd see all of Spain, and we'd start from there. But I can't really start from there. I have to start from here. Let me tell you a story. Actually, before I tell this story, we have to talk about where the United States is now in the wine-producing world that exists on our globe. The United States is the fourth largest wine producer on the planet behind Spain, France, and Italy which is crazy because we're not even 300 years old. A study done in 2011 showed that the United States has over 1,005,000 acres of land under vine. That was in 2011. You know that's growing. And in 2013, the U.S. sold more than 375 million cases of wine. Now, according to the Oxford Wine Companion, this is continuing a 21-year increase in volume in the United States. So that's crazy. And the capper is in the 2010s, the United States became the world's most significant importer in wine. We love wine. The 375 million cases of wine, which basically roughly translates to 750 million gallons of wine, well, 90% of that was contributed to by California. So we got to rip the Band-Aid off here, guys. Right now in the history of American wine, California is the most important wine producing state we have. Everything else is important too, but as far as what we produce, it's the biggest. And that is followed by Washington, Oregon, 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 
<laughs> sorry, and New York. There is wine being made in all 50 states of the United States. So how did we get here? How did we get to this, these stats, these pretty amazingly crazy stats in such a short amount of time? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's a short amount of time, especially when you look at the history of Europe and the rest of the world, the United States history, not America's history, but the United States history begins mostly in the 15th century, 16th century. And I say that because that's when most of the 16th century, this is when Europeans got on boats and looked for other places to colonize, conquer, and live. And I got to say, when I was looking at these three episodes that I'm about to do here, I, I was trying to figure out where to begin because the United States, you know, there's the East, Eastern states, and then there's the Western states. And then there is everybody eventually rushing from the East to the West, depending on who you were and what your station in life was. And I decided I have to start with dates. And unfortunately, not unfortunately, the history of wine in America, the earliest, which would be like the early 1600s, things didn't go well. The, the, the Europeans came to these shores, planted the varieties that they knew from home, and they would die. They found grapes that were already here, and they planted those, and those made wine, but not the kind of wine that they were used to back home in Europe. This battle between Vitis vinifera, European vines, and the short or long-ish, shortish list of American varieties before hybrids is what the history of the eastern part of the United States basically has to deal with. And unfortunately, it's just a long list of heartbreak. Or we could say it a different way. It's a long list of ambitious <laughs> um, efforts. Because the thing is, we as we became a country, we never stopped trying to make wine. It was just this ongoing thing, and everyone thought they could actually crack the code and do it but nobody could from the beginnings. What you really see are captains of ships and crews and people that were making their way from Europe to what would be the United States. There were a lot of campaigns in pamphlets and in writing to, um, to sort of entice people to come to the new world. You can actually even go back all the way to the 11th century, five centuries before Christopher Columbus was doing his thing, where a German cleric was writing about the Vikings' travels all the way over to where, well, basically it was, it was Newfoundland in Canada. He wrote about a conversation he was having with the Danish king at the time, and he said, and I quote, or he wrote, and I quote, he also told me of another island discovered by many in that ocean. It is called Vinland because vines grow on their own accord, producing the most excellent wine. The thing is, they weren't really wine grapes, but they were, and I think I read somewhere they thought they were maybe cranberries or some sort of berry that was not a wine, you know, berry. But this is the theme. All the way past Christopher Columbus, all the way past when the Europeans were coming over to the shores of what would be the United States and they were, they, they needed to send news back to Europe and it had to 
probably be good news because they're spending a lot of money, a lot of royal money making these trips, but they also wanted to colonize and take over this new land. So anything they would say about anything, I would imagine, would be kind of, you know, flowery. I don't know about anything else, but I do know about the wine. All up and down the East Coast, as more and more Europeans made it to the East Coast of what would be the United States, from Florida, South Carolina, Virginia, New York, on the way up, all the way towards Maine, there was all of this talk of vines growing naturally and all of this abundance and how we were all going to just have basically European wine culture in this new world. And a lot of this, yes, was flowery talk. And it was basically saying, hey, a lot of great things are going to happen, knowing that a lot of great things aren't necessarily going to happen. It's going to take a while for great things to happen, as we know now in history. But just even though that those were kind of lies, <laughs> just like, yeah, come on over. It's all beautiful and wonderful when it really wasn't totally wonderful and beautiful, especially for the wine situation, is that even though that was tough and hard and almost impossible making wine in this new world. It didn't stop anybody from trying and we've been trying to do it all the way to today. We have not stopped. And it really kind of starts in the 16th century settlers from Europe come over to what would be the United States and they are kind of floored by the amount of native vines growing on these lands from the Carolinas, which would be the, what's called the Carolina colonies all the way to Florida, up through Virginia, and going even further and even somewhat inland, it was a very exciting time. The problem was every vine that was being grown did not produce the kind of wine that their European palates were used to. But wine is a very important part of European life, and they wanted to transfer that over to this new world. So the next step is to actually bring people from wine-producing areas of Europe to this new land to see if they couldn't crack the code of why European vines are always dying, it's too cold, we can't find the right vines, and the native vines aren't that awesome. Can you please come over and help us, please? And that's where we get to the year 1619, which is really the year that is thought to be the first European vines going into... American soil, what would be American soil. And what happened was, what history shows is that it was the Virginia Company, which is a huge, huge trading company at the time, sent French vines over to Virginia and with them sent French Huguenots or Huguenots, which are a religious sect in Europe that were being persecuted at the time and they were looking to peace out. So why don't we bring these French monks right, <laughs> who know how to make wine to the United States and see what can happen. And throughout the 17th century, in this new world, these monks were sent everywhere, from Florida to the Carolinas, into Pennsylvania, Virginia, everywhere that we were trying to make wine, the Huguenot or the Huguenot monks were brought to. And what's interesting about this is William Penn, who's a big figure in Pennsylvania, obviously, his gardener was a Huguenot or Huguenot, one of a large group of Huguenots brought over from Europe in 1700, specifically to the James River area of Virginia. But he was in charge of planting a bunch of vines that William Penn had gone to England and Europe and he had grabbed a bunch of Bordeaux vines 
to be brought over to the United States to be planted in his garden called Lemon Hill in Pennsylvania. And those vines were planted by Andrew Dawes, who was the gardener of William Penn. In 1740, James Alexander, then gardener to William Penn's son, Thomas Penn, was walking around the woods near that old vineyard that his dad's gardener planted. And he saw a vine in the woods that, for some reason, he thought had promise. So he went ahead and replanted this variety, and it was successful. And so he called this the Alexander grape because his name was James Alexander. This is the first hybrid American wine experiences in a big way. And what's interesting about this, it is a hybrid that was naturally crossed probably with Vitis vinifera Bordeaux varieties, which we'll never know because there was not enough documentation about it. And both William Penn and Andrew Dawes passed away before any of that could be realized. But this is kind of a big deal. And it showed that there is a way to make wine in this new world. And this is basically mostly around the colonized world at the time in the eastern part of the United States. This grape, the Alexander grape, along with other hybrids with names like Catawba, Delaware, Dufour, start making their way all around this part of the United States, and people are planting vineyards all over the place in Ohio, in New Jersey. Actually, Jersey's making sparkling cider and calling it champagne, and that's a little bit weird. Actually, it's happening in Newark, which is kind of cool. But this involves all this that's happening. It's very active, wine lovers. It's very active, but it's, it never produces what we, as former Europeans, actually want to experience when we're drinking wine. Now, I've talked a lot about Thomas Jefferson, and when Thomas Jefferson was in power, whether he was a statesman or president or whatever, he wanted the United States to be a wine-producing country. I mean, this guy's famous for saying, quote, no nation is drunken where wine is cheap and none sober, where the dearness of wine substitutes ardent spirits as the common beverage. This guy wanted it to happen. And I, I would like to do an entire episode on Thomas Jefferson because there's a lot of stuff that he was involved with that I really can't get into because of time. But he was monetarily, emotionally involved in trying to make wine happen. He actually hired an Italian winemaker from Tuscany to come and help him make wine. It didn't work um, on his estate at Monticello. He made sure to secure land over in areas like the Ohio Valley for wine. He would actually accept wine being sent to him from anywhere in the United States to be tried. Sometimes he would respond, sometimes he wouldn't. And he was so into wine and making it happen that he actually would taste wine that he didn't like. Wines made from native varieties that had just didn't have the European vibe to them. And he would write back saying, good job, keep going. Because he thought that if he could just keep on encouraging it, it would happen. And in his lifetime, it was never realized. But fortunately, we got there, Tommy. Just not when you wanted us to. And because of the work of immigrants in this country, because of work of federal money, of power, at some point in the 1830s, there's a guy named Nicholas Longworth. And he establishes what is considered the most extensive wine production business in Cincinnati, Ohio. 
So there was a lot of, see what I'm saying? It was everywhere. It was everywhere. But the problem was, even with all this activity and all these hybrids and everything kind of is working here and there, like see, wineries would pop up and they would go away and it was just, it's just like this very sort of like all these little pockets of activity throughout this part of the northeastern part of the United States is that no matter what the hybrids did, even if they were hardy in some sort of winter or this, there are certain things out there that were native to this country, especially in the northeastern part of the United States, that would just crop up and you had to deal with it. One of them was phylloxera, and don't worry, we're going to get the phylloxera. But in, a, in the Ohio Valley, something crazy happened called black rot. Now, European winemakers had never heard of black rot. Black rot is actually a native fungus to Northern America. It's called a sack fungus, and that's gross. And the sack bursts, and all these spores fly all around a vineyard, and they start eating on the vineyard, and they destroy the entire vineyard. That's a problem. And at some point in the Ohio Valley, they had a plague of black rot. And then why am I saying, why is Keith talking about this? The reason I'm talking about this is at that time in Cincinnati, Ohio, there was a big winemaking production there. It all had to stop. And there were a lot of people there and they had to move. So where do they move? They moved north to Lake Erie. That's close to the Finger Lakes. So that's an important part right there of American wine history. The black rot of the Ohio Valley brought humans, winemakers, up into the Finger Lakes region. And I have a whole episode on New York that you should listen to. It has the history and everything there. One of the, the oldest winery in America is actually in New York, Brotherhood Winery. It's pretty cool. But another big moment in American wine history in this place of, in where we are right now in the United States, is Missouri. From its very early days, Missouri had a German winemaking community. And that winemaking tradition stayed for a very long time and is still there to this day in Missouri. And we're going to talk about that at some point. But also, these German immigrants in the Missouri area also made their way to the Finger Lakes region. That is interesting. So about the decade leading up to the Civil War, the United States, or what it was at the time, was very interested in wine. There was a lot of wine going on. A lot of hybrids were happening. And not accidental hybrids either. Hybrids that are being actively cross-grafted with or cross-breeded with Vitis vinifera vines. Actually, speaking of Missouri... One of the most important people in wine in Missouri, besides the winemakers doing all the work and trying to make it happen, is a dude named C.V. Riley. And if you remember, if you listen to Wine 101, you remember that name, go back and listen to the Philoxera episode and we'll talk about him. He was studying rootstocks at the time. Huh. Also, as this all went on, the federal government dis- was involved. They started ramping up, the, like, Before the Civil War, the federal government was giving money out to help plant exploration, the distribution of plants throughout the New World, a lot of experimental work. There was a lot of analysis going on with grapes and vines. This is kind of the beginning of what we are doing now, but it started then. And and the federal government was like, we got to figure this out because of this, what is going on here? Because wine was being made everywhere, guys. It was being made all over the eastern part of the United States from the East Coast and on in into what was becoming the Midwest. 
But while all this was happening from the East Coast into what would be known as the Midwest, all this heartbreak, all this, all the ups and downs, all the stops and starts, all the money, all the frustration, all the posturing, all the gesturing, all the, everyone trying to like say, we're the ones going to make it right. We're going to make it work. But the thing is, because of a lack of communication lines, what people didn't know is that Vitis vinifera, the European vine, was being grown successfully and being made into wine in the Spanish settlements of the Rio Grande, which is documented from 1626, mainly in Texas, in all of New Mexico. And this is where things really pop off. And next week, for part two of American Wine History, the story just starts ramping up. Find Pear Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pair. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pair, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. Gallo Winery is excited to sponsor this episode of Vine Pairs Wine 101. Gallo always welcomes new friends to wine with an amazing wide range of favorites ranging from everyday to luxury and sparkling wines. I mean, Gallo also makes award-winning spirits, but you know, this is a wine podcast. So whether you're new to wine or an aficionado, Gallo welcomes you to wine. Visit the barrelroomwine.com today to find your next favorite, where shipping is available.